Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Nicholas Eberstadt is with us today. He is the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of many books, many things, including A Nation of Takers, America's Ent Entitlement Epidemic. Uh, he has another book in 2016 entitled Men Without Work, and I think it's an important work with a new edition being published uh, recently that updates that particular phenomenon after the COVID pandemic has hit. This is our subject today. Welcome, Dr. Eberstadt. Thank you so much, Professor Bauerlein. <laughs> well, uh, before getting to the new edition, uh, let's talk about the old one. In 2016, you reported on a, quote, quiet catastrophe that has hit America over the previous two generations. This is not a brand new phenomenon. What is that catastrophe and why has it been so quiet? What I tried to throw a spotlight on back in 2016 with the first edition of Men Without Work was the collapse of work for men in modern America. Uh, if you look in particular at the 25 to 54-year-old guys, they're called uh, men of prime working ages for obvious reasons, but those are also critical ages for forming families and raising kids. Starting in the mid-60s, there was this oh, eerie trend, this exit from the labor force, uh, this growing group of men who were neither working nor looking for work. That had not been the case for the first two decades after World War II, but starting in the mid-60s, there's almost a straight line up in terms of the percentage of guys who are neither working nor looking for work. Um, by the time I wrote this book, um, there were over three times as many guys who are neither working nor looking for work as who are unemployed, as who are without a job and trying to look for one. Uh, our national employment statistics were developed in uh, the early 1940s at the tail end of the Great Depression. And back then it would have been inconceivable that a guy who didn't have work wouldn't be looking for work. So the we, were, we have a labor statistics system that was built to fight the last war, if you see what I mean. Because um, that has the fastest growing group for men in this uh, age has been those who are neither working nor looking for work. And uh, they, 
they have become a huge contingent in American society, and there's absolutely nothing good that comes of this. Uh, how? Just a side question, Nick. How? Wh where does one gather the numbers on these people and their habits and their intentions? Aren't they under the radar because they're not picked up for, as as the unemployed? Are they? No, they're not picked up as unemployed. Uh, but they are, they do show up in various ways, of course, because we've got a giant national statistical system. I mean, you have to remember that our uh, our government is the fir first new government, the first new nation in the world. We had a uh, evidence based data uh, concept before this was seen anywhere else in the world. That's why we established a national census in 1790. That was pretty high tech for the 18th century. So hmm. we, we have lots of information uh, on not just uh, who is working, but also on who is not working. We've got some information, government information, on what the guys who are not working say that they do with their time. We've got information on who spends money and on what. We've got this one, we have two gaps that I think are quite important. Uh, one of these gaps turns out to be quite consequential now, and that is we don't have very good statistics on disability insurance. We've got a crazy quilt system of disability payments for people who are not at work. I can tell you more about that, but it, it's kind of a blind spot. And until you really start picking at it, you don't realize how much of the unworking male population is dependent upon one or more of these disability programs. The other thing, which is, I think, a little bit of a, a little bit of a scandal, is that the government kind of forgot to uh, gather any information on the population of Americans who have a felony conviction in their background. That may have been okay when there were only, and I say that with quotes, when there were only two million adult ex-cons in society, you know, in the early post-war era. But now we've probably got 25 million ex-cons in America, probably mm -hmm. one in seven adult males, and we've got almost no information about them. That's obviously a big uh, blind spot for understanding this men without work problem, too. You mentioned the disability payments, but about these the, the others, how have these unworking males been able to survive? What, what are they doing to get by? Well, as I, as I show in uh, Men Without Work, they, the evidence suggests, the, uh, the data suggests that they're uh, getting by with the help of friends, including girlfriends. And family, if you have a broad definition of the family that includes Uncle Sam in it, um, <laughs> uh, very little, obviously because they're not working, very little income uh, being earned, although it's impossible for me to tell how much moonlighting there is. My suspicion is that there's some, but not People people aren't like buying uh, second homes with their moonlighting income. It's, it's pin money, I think, for the most part. Uh, what what we see is that between um, you know help from help from friends, help from family, and government benefits, the this group of men without work uh, are not at the bottom of society economically. 
the bottom fifth in terms of spending power and living standards is uh, disproportionately uh, single mothers uh, with kids. They, they have a really hard time. The, the men without work that I'm describing aren't so much in the bottom fifth as in the second fifth, you know, uh, the 20 to 40 group, more or less. Ironically, that's kind of that's kind of where in the uh, old times we would have uh, ex- expected people that we'd have called working class. And I mean, this is kind of like the unworking class that's in there. And you don't see signs, as you said, the moonlighting issue. These are not people operating under the radar in some energetic, entrepreneurial, or even sociopathic way. There's no sign that uh, that these are these are people working working the system in any, I mean, in any energetic way at all. You don't see that. Well, not not in term, not on the whole, in a remarkable entrepreneurial gaming the system sort of way. I mean, you know, remember, I'm just I'm a nerd, you know, sitting in a basement looking at, uh, you know, looking at numbers on, a, you know, on a computer. Um, I mean, if you wanted to get a better sense of uh, what this is like in real life, you'd have somebody on your show like Senator-elect J.D. Vance, who actually lived it and saw it in real life and wrote about it, I think, you know, quite compellingly in Hillbilly yeah. Elegy. So th- there is certainly an aspect of gaming the system that he describes, but it's also true that he was not describing people who were accruing a princely income from gaming the system. He described a world which was uh, awash in misery. And I think what we're talking about here is an awful lot of misery. Yeah. You refer to the first years of the 21st century in the United States as a, quote, second gilded age. What are, what are the social characteristics of this, of this gilded age? Why do you call it that? Well, I kind of compare it to the first Gilded Age, which, as you know, was the end of the uh, the end of the nineteenth century. I mean, the end of the nineteenth century saw an extraordinary explosion of creativity and wealth, um, and our time has seen uh, the same: a great deal of creativity. Uh, we are awash in wealth in a way that I don't think that. Um, earlier generations could possibly have imagined. I mean, even with the dip in the stock market and uh, with uh, home prices recently, if you divided up the net worth in the United States and you uh, you uh, chopped it into uh, equal blocks and gave it to notional families of four, you'd be talking about a million, million and a half dollars uh, for a notional family of four. That's an awful lot of money that's floating around. Hmm. So we've been fantastically successful at generating wealth. But just as in in the Gilded Age, we also had big social problems. Uh, We've got big social problems now. Um, Our economy has slowed down appreciably compared to the 50 years right after World War II or the 55 years right after World War II. And we've seen this drop off in, uh, in labor that I've described. Now, so you'll remember that the first Gilded Age uh, ushered in an era of populism. And, you know, if 
you don't have to be a really super duper social scientist to imagine that if you have a huge increase in wealth for the wealth holders and a drop in work for the workers, that you're going to be setting the stage for some sort of a reaction, populist or otherwise. And so I think that's I think that's uh, much of what we have seen in the uh, the 21st century, and that's why the allusion to Second Gilded Age. Right. Uh. You go into recent. You, you mentioned you mentioned uh, 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 the the drop in wages. You go back to the two thousand eight crash, and one of the things you remark about it was not the crash itself, but the recovery from it was, as you put it, quote, unusually slow. Why was it slow? Well, we've. It's not just the recovery from the two thousand eight crash. It's the it's the now the entire uh, sorry history of our economic performance since the year two thousand. Our pace of economic growth, our per capita economic growth in the United States since uh, the year two thousand has been just over one percent a year per annum. Um, on that trajectory. It's going to take more than 60 years for per capita output to double, which is to say it's going to take, you know, two or three generations on that tempo for uh, for incomes to double. Uh, that's an awful slow rate of growth. And there are a number of different factors that clearly uh, are influencing it. But until we, uh, and w- one of them, of course, is the uh, the drop off of workers in and of employment in our modern system. But uh, if we have uh, if we have slow growth like that as the norm and as the new expectation for what one can achieve, uh, then politics uh, and social life changes in some ways that I don't think are quite so pleasant as they were in the previous uh, late century. Yeah. Uh, this question gets back to the quietness of the catastrophe. One, one of the things that in, in your book, it's either frustrating or illuminating or both. You quote news stories in Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal and, and other prominent news sources stating over and over that the employment picture is really, really great. People, people are going back to work in America. How can they continue to present such a, a partial picture? I won't say that they get their facts wrong. It's less they don't, they don't give a whole world of other facts that you highlight. Why do they continue to do this? One reason they continue to do this is because we have an employment statistics system that was built, as I say, to fight the last war. It looks at the unemployment rate. It looks at the number of people who are employed. By It defines not in labor force as a non-problem, as something that's not part of the discussion, right? And so uh, for this reason, uh, if you're only looking at one quarter or one-fifth of the non-work problem for prime age men, you can have all sorts of happy talk about uh, remarkably low unemployment, right, while you're missing four-fifths of the problem. Unless you look at the actual work rates, you're going to miss the basic story. 
And one of the things I pointed out in the first edition, and unfortunately this is still all too true in the new updated version, is that work rates for prime age guys are lower now than they were when we started collecting employment statistics for real in 1940, which was the tail end of the Great Depression, when the national unemployment rate was almost 15%. So we have had in the 21st century, on average, if you take it month by month for the 21st century up to the time that we're talking uh, this morning, um, we have had a work rate for guys that is lower than it was in March of 1940. Okay. Uh, so we have, we, we've had more or less a 1937 uh, work problem in the United States uh, for the 21st century. And there is absolutely nothing positive that comes out of this economically, socially, in terms of civic society, uh, or probably politically. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, this is a side question because I don't believe you go into this in the book. I can't remember you doing so, but you, you refer to the happy talk uh, of, of these articles. Are finance journalists encouraged to, to give the, the rosy picture? Is there, is there a motivation uh, about the economy, let's let's not harp on bad news. Well, I think I think when the when the markets are booming and the um, and the Fed is talking about how uh, the U.S. is at near full employment, it's uh, it's easy to drink the Kool Aid. I mean. You, you, have to, you have to be a little bit of a contrarian and you may have to, uh, oh my gosh, do actually a little bit of legwork of your own if you yes. want to come up and get the alternative story. One of the reasons, uh, to be quite uh, blunt about it, one of the reasons that financial journalists uh, weren't, uh, didn't have this thrust in their face is because the men without work weren't out uh, burning cars and uh, uh, setting uh, cities on fire. They are hmm. sitting at home all too often, uh, you know, inert, um, you know, kind of self-anesthetized and getting uh, kind of like getting on a prep course for deaths of despair because, yeah. uh, because they were not a menace to society. It was easy to ignore. Right. Uh, has the government, have, have certain more of the more astute economists working in the federal government who actually look at some of these numbers and notice things, have they in some ways tried to develop programs, policies that manage this loss of tax revenue because of these non-taxpaying citizens? Well, um, 
Because because we have uh, had this slowdown in economic growth, uh, which was not entirely unrelated to the dropout from the workforce, um, we have a sort of a, there's a political economy problem that we have here. If you're, um, if the natural, let's say, that if the expected growth rate of the United States slows down, people's expectations for their improvement in living standards don't necessarily slow down. So how do you deal with this? Well, one way you can deal with this is through programs that provide new benefits. Another way that you can provide for it is through um, arrangements that allow people to become more indebted through commercial and public debt. One of the things which we saw in which which we saw really from the end of the Cold War until the eve of the pandemic was an, was a flatlining of net worth for the bottom half of the United States. This takes us a lot outside of um, this takes us outside of this men without work question that I'm describing. We're talking about half of the half of the households in America, not just seven million uh, male dropouts. But yeah. uh, it's it's to make the point that there. Are, there were more pervasive, uh, there was a more pervasive sort of uh, set of problems that were creating this new misery, uh, not just this, uh, not just this dropout uh, problem from the labor force. Yeah. Look, if these men of prime working age are not working, they're not paying into the social security system. Do we see a big impact there? Sure. I mean, we see a big we see a big impact everywhere. I mean, what what does I mean? Just I'll walk you through it. If you have um, a tenth or more of prime age men who are neither working nor looking for work, what does it mean? It means uh, slower economic growth. It means bigger income gaps in society. It means bigger wealth gaps in society. Uh, it means in all likelihood, more welfare dependence, and a flip side of that, more government indebtedness. It means Mm -hmm. more pressure on fragile families. It means less social mobility. It means more anomie and detachment from not just the economy, but from other aspects of, you know, outside community, uh, means less trust in public institutions, less involvement in public institutions, and probably um, more frayed politics for all of those reasons. This has nothing good that comes out of this. <laughs> Have other nations experienced the same flight of, of, of a good, significant portion of men from work? That's an excellent question. And the answer is yes, but. I mean, what we see everywhere around, the the yes is that we see this everywhere around the world for prime age men, a decline to some degree in labor force participation rates for the 25 to 54 year old guys in the period since the 1960s. Um, And this has to do with global trends in economic and structural technical change. Uh, globalization, decline of manufacturing, all of that. Uh, The but is very important here. No affluent democracy, no rich society has seen the 
prolonged and brutal decline in workforce participation that the USA has witnessed. I mean, you go across the border and you're in Canada, you're Canada and the US are as close to being twins as any two big rich countries in the world can be. Um, Canada hasn't had the same short drop off that we've had. What, do, do we get from the men themselves reasons that they give for for dropping out? Yeah, we do. I mean, there's there um, the the U.S. government asks surveys and uh, of of people who've been out of the workforce for a year or more. They ask them, you know, why are you out? Now, of course, because it's a government survey, it's pretty procrustean. You know, there's seven million guys who are in this dropout pool, and I think they ask you know, they ask about seven. They give you about seven different categories that you can be in. So it's a li- you know. Um, it's a little procrustean, as I said. What these surveys show are a couple of things. One is that very, very, very few of these guys say that they've dropped out of the workforce, even in the post-COVID era, to take care of people at home. There's an absolutely enormous care chasm between uh, women and men who are out of the workforce. It's it's order of magnitude higher for women, uh, the reason they give. The other thing that we see is that men who uh, men who are not in the workforce um, don't usually say that they're not in the workforce because they can't get jobs. Uh, only a tiny fraction, I think at this point maybe less than a tenth, a tenth, uh, say that they're out of the workforce because there's no work to be found. Uh, so it, it, it's other things which are going on. And obviously, uh, the evidence of our senses shows us that it's not a, a lack of work at the moment. We're living in this bizarre peacetime uh, labor shortage economy where we've got 11 million unfilled jobs, and they're not all for, you know, for rocket scientists. Uh, I mean, the skills that are required for millions of these jobs are just the skills of showing up to work regularly and on time, uh, you know, sober. So it's not it's not the demanding skill level that is uh, keeping people out of uh, out of this work. It's, it's other things that are going on. Okay, the new edition, we, we move forward. How, the big question is, how has the pandemic affected this, this uh, unworking situation? Well, Mark, I would say in two ways. I'd say that the, the uh, prime male workforce dropout problem has worsened in the sense that it has continued in the first edition of the book back in 2016, I uh, did a chart where I showed there was almost a straight line from 1965 to 2016 in terms of the percentage of guys who had dropped out of the workforce. You know, this not in labor force percentage is almost a straight line up, almost like something geological or geophysical. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, in the new edition of the book, we see that that line continues almost as if you could have started it in 65. It looks like we've just continued the same straight line upwards. I can't explain it. I mean, there's no good social science explanation for why it should have so uncannily just continued upward in that way. Uh, You wouldn't necessarily have expected that. So that part of the problem has worsened, as you can see, by this continuing upward straight line, almost straight line. 
But the problem has also worsened in a, in a different respect, in that there are now other groups that seem to be joining into the flight from work in modern America. Um, we, we have about 4 million fewer people in the workforce today than we would have expected if the pre-COVID trend had just continued. Uh, and it's a kind of a um, remarkable coincidence that the number of unfilled jobs has risen by about 4 million at the same time that the labor force is about 4 million shorter than we would have expected on pre-COVID trends. But here we get into this sort of um, new face of the flight from work. Only a tiny minority of this 4 million shortfall is prime age men. Most of this new group this uh, gap is men and women 55 and older who were hmm. basically the only ray of sunshine in the pre-COVID labor tableau in the United States because their work and uh, participation rates went up quite dramatically from the mid-90s until 2019. The other group that we start to see here um, are women under the age of 55. And I don't want to, like, uh, pull a hair on fire thing with you. I don't want to set off uh, red flashing lights. But I think we do need some cautionary yellow lights because what's going on with some of the prime age women, I think, bears attention and watching. Uh, last question, Nick. Uh, maybe this is the big question. This can't go on, right? What? is going to happen in, in, the, in the next 10 years? We're a very rich country. We're an extraordinarily rich country. There has never been a society in the world that has been as, has created as much affluence as we have. So if we choose to squander our affluence, we can do some very bad things for a very long period of time. Um, that being said, I like to think that there uh, that there's a lot of scope for turning the ship aright. Um, there's so many different things that can be done to uh, to move us back in a more healthy direction. I mean, we can start by saying the obvious around the kitchen table and in the public square. Work is a service to others that helps to complete you. Its pecuniary impact is not necessarily the most important or even the most beneficial. Uh, it's the earned success that people have from being attached to the workforce, being attached to their families, being attached to their communities. Uh, so it is also true that the so apart from uh, apart from committing truth in public which would be a little nice to see um, there are different things that the government can do the government cannot fix the family in america uh, the government cannot fix our, the state of religious belief in america the government can do some things about education it can fill some of the egregious skill gaps that we're missing uh, it's revealing that we can't, that in education circles, um, 
the word vocational is now omerta. It's now politically <laughs> correct. That tells us in a way a little bit about what the problem is, right? But that's one gap that can be filled. Uh, we could try turning our dysfunctional uh, programs of disability insurance on their head and having a work-first principle there. We had a very successful welfare reform in the 1990s, which was focused upon single mothers. Maybe we could have a reform that's focused upon men without work. Maybe that could have some benefits. There's another, there's another, there's an invisible population that I think deserves some attention here, which is the millions and millions, the tens of millions of ex-cons who uh, live in our country at the moment under this kind of like cloak of um, government-imposed statistical darkness. Um, we can't, there are 25 million uh, men and women, mainly men, who have a felony conviction in their background right around now, we believe. That's like one in seven adult guys. We can't have evidence-based approaches to getting these guys back into the workforce or back into families and communities uh, if we don't have the evidence. And that's, it would, it would take so little effort and it might have such important benefits. It mystifies me why this hasn't been done. I pointed this out in 2016 in the first edition of this book. I've talked to Senate offices for over the last six years, blue and red, you know, male and female senators. Everybody pats me on the head and says, Nick, it's a great idea. There's the door. I do not know why. Uh, I do not know why this is uh, an area of a kind of like a perverse consensus of disinterest. Yeah. Well, look, uh, uh, I expect, Nick, that you will uh, come forward with um, as a lead advisor for J.D. Vance to craft one of these one of these work first or, or, or whatever uh, policies. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to hold you to that in, in the spring. OK. Sure. And look at Tom Cotton. He's already working on some of this stuff. Maybe Senators Cotton and Vance will have some talking to do to each other. All right. The book is a new edition of Men Without Work, updated for a, a post-pandemic world. Nicholas Deverstadt, thank you for joining us. Mark, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.